Hello and welcome to another episode of the Between the Posts podcast. This time we are going to Spain for a very classic fixture, the Derby of Sevilla. My name is Erik Elias and with me also of Between the Posts, Jose Perez. Jose, welcome. Hello, Eric. Hello, everyone. Today, uh, well, yesterday in my home here in Rochester, we had almost like 35 degree weather. So it's very similar to what uh, to being in in Seville these days. So very mm-hmm. hot weather, uh, very sort of a, makes me feel like I would be in the stadium already to watch. Right, and this must have been a festive day for you because you are a true La Liga fan. You know all about it, and it's back. Yes, to be honest, it it was back not in the most exciting way. We uh, maybe because I ha- I had been without La Liga for so long, I put too much hope in this game and. Frankly, they're just restarting. They were; st- It was a bit slow. Right, but normally throughout the years, throughout the past few seasons, this has been a fixture that has been traditionally very good and attractive and fun and heated. And it's not that strange that we thought this one would be good too, you know? Yeah, that is also correct, yes. Over the last two to three years, the Sevilla derbies have been very, very fun. And with lots of goals a lot of the time. Right. This time, not so much, but let's dive right into it. Can you tell a little bit about the lineups, both teams? Yes. So for today, because of the entire quarantine, both teams had basically all access to their full lineups. No big, no big injury. So Sevilla could play with their usual four three, nominal 4-3-3. What we saw today was probably, I would say, their best lineup, apart from the absence of Banega. Sevilla have such a nice squad that they could afford to play without Banega and they would still probably play as well. We had the center, the center back pair of Jules Kunde and Diego Carlos, the fullback pair of Jesus Navas and Sergio Reguilon. Two of the be- one of the best defensive lines in the league, by the way. The midfield choices were Fernando as the holding midfielder, the usual, Joan Jordan and Oliver Torres as the interior midfielders. I would say that they were chosen instead of Banega because they are a bit more intense physically for the pressing. And for the forwards, we had Luke de Jong as the center forward. And on the wings, we had Lucas Ocampos, probably the Sevilla forward that has done best this season in terms of goals and assists, and Munir on the left wing. Then, would you call it a 4-3-3 formation? This is a more traditional 4-3-3. Like Sevilla, for mm-hmm. example, doesn't really... For example, build for, with a back three. No, like it's more of a traditional 4-3-3. Right, check. And on the opposite side, we had Real Betis Sevilla, who also played in a 4-3-3. Can you tell a little bit about their formation? Yes. So nominally, Betis played a, in a 4-3-3. But to be honest, in build-up, they do like to play with a back three. So the formation often looked more like a 3-4-3. Very aggressive. And to be honest... Sometimes it looked more like a 3-2-5, like wing-back positioning was very aggressive. We had Sydney and Mark Batras, the centre-backs. Very good squad, too. They have two very capable centre-backs on the bench, which were Mandi and Fedal. They didn't play this time. The full-back pair was Emerson on the right, Alex Moreno on the left. A very nice midfield trio with uh, Guido Rodriguez in the holding midfield role. And most interestingly, uh, Sergio Canales and Carles Aleña, the Barcelona, as the interior midfielders. Then we had Borja Iglesias as the center forward. 
And on the wings, Christian Teo on the left and Nabil Fekir on the right. So quite a traditional center forward, one traditional winger in Teo and a bit of an offensive midfielder on the right in Fekir. That is correct. In the case of Fekir, normally you would expect him to uh, tend a bit more towards the center and in between the lines. We're going to explain why that didn't happen too much today. Sure. Well, let's start with the first half and with a huge disclaimer that this was the first competitive game for both teams in three months. Barring injuries, it might be the longest some of them has got, have gone without playing any competitive football. You know, we, we understand all the limitations in terms of training sessions for the last couple of months. That being said, this was not a good game of football and it started right off in the first half. I thought it was static. I didn't enjoy it very much. How do you view it? Frankly, from the side of Sevilla, I liked it. Like Sevilla looked like the quarantine hadn't happened, which is good because it means they didn't lose anything. It also means they had the same problems they've had throughout the entire season. Quarantine didn't solve their football problems, oddly enough, which was maybe a bit too much to expect. Yeah, we can say Sevilla was the better team. Uh, Can you maybe dive in a little bit about what happened in the first half? What did we see? Oh, absolutely. So I would say that, especially throughout the first half, Sevilla was fairly dominant. Their pressing did very well against a pretty slow and stagnant Betis buildup. I would say that when you look at Betis' buildup, again, they try to build with with three at the back. So the holding midfielder, Guido Rodriguez, uh, drops in between the center backs to build up. But then you have the back three, and then the rest of the team felt like it was so far apart, especially the wingbacks. So it was kind of easy for Sevilla to disconnect that back three from the rest of the team. And Betty struggled the entire game. Well, at more to, and towards the end, things changed a bit. But throughout most of the game, they did struggle to progress through midfield. What we can say is that the clash between Betis' build-up game and Sevilla's pressing was won by Sevilla's pressing, who won the ball easily a lot of times. How did their pressing work today? What, what, what did they do well? So I would say that for the most part, Sevilla pressed very actively with four players, which would be the three forwards and Oliver Torres, who was very active. Uh, whenever Guido Rodriguez, the holding midfielder of Betis, tried to drop in between center backs, Oliver was always following him and was always making it very hard for him to receive the ball then Sevilla's pressing is well-coordinated in that they know very well that their forwards shift very well to the side where the ball is. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, Sevilla tends to be uh, very aggressive in their pressing, and they can often leave like a man free on the other side where the ball is not. A good opponent might have found a space, like might have been able to lob the ball and send it to that free man on the far side. But Betis's ball circulation throughout the entire game was very slow, and frankly, the players don't were not doing those kinds of lob passes to break out of the pressure. And I think that's one of the things that affected Betis's possession game the most. Okay, so would you say that Betis left some chances to play through them a couple of times, or was it really well coordinated by Sevilla? For the most part, I'd say it's a mix of Sevilla being very well coordinated and Betis just having... Kind of slow ball circulation. Right. And, and it's been an issue. That it, this is a chronic issue. This is, Betis has been this season a very inconsistent team, to be honest. And they've struggled to click 
their buildup has been an issue the entire season. Yeah, and it has been Betis' style for the past two or three seasons to have a lot of possession and build from the back. If we can only think back who their former manager was, Kike Setien, who's now obviously managing Barcelona. So it has been inside their football DNA for the past few seasons. What we did see in the first half was that uh, Betis had 51% possession, but Sevilla had seven shots and Betis had only three shots. So it's quite obvious that they had more of the ball. I'd, if you would have asked me, I thought it would be more than 51% possession, but a lot of times it was possession in their own half or for their defenders or their midfielders and never in the area where you want to have the ball. So that was kind of the possession game we saw from them. Yes, and I would say that at least with Setien, uh, Betis was always pretty good at kind of finding that free man. That didn't happen today. They were really not... The possession was low. They never really found the free man. So it was really hard for them to create danger. A lot of, and a lot of the time, by the way, going back to the case of Fekir, to help his team progress, Fekir basically had to like scoot over to the wing to help do some ball progression in the wing. Fekir did not operate most of the game in the center, which is where he can do the most damage. Most of the time, he was operating on the wing, and that's how Sevilla managed to keep the threat of Fekir mostly under control throughout the game. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Sevilla's pressing. We've talked about a little bit about Sevilla's defending, but they didn't have to defend all that much. Can we talk a little bit about their plan with the ball? Because all season long, Sevilla have been a frustrating team when attacking, when entering the final third, the last 30 yards of the field. What's their plan there? Why is it so predictable? And why is it so frustrating to watch? That's always an interesting question because I think Yes, Sevilla has internalized very well this movement of switching play to the fullbacks. And then, like, basically they have made the fullbacks uh, be the free men in their possession setup. And they're really good at creating those spaces for the fullback and then switching to the fullback on the far side. But once the ball gets there, and at that point Sevilla is entering the final third, it feels like the only thing everyone knows how to do is crossing. Like, either the fullback crosses into the box or passes it to the winger. The winger tries to dribble a guy and then cross into the box. So, And that's basically where it dies. Nobody tries to do anything else. Sevilla also doesn't try to move the ball. Once they're in the final third, they don't move the ball from side to side that much. So they don't move the opposition defense too much. It's a bit, things precipitate a lot once they're in the final uh-huh. third. They go for the cross immediately. Which is... Sometimes obvious if you have Luke de Jong as a striker, but what kind of profile do they miss in the squad? Yeah, you Spanish guys would say plantilla. In the, what, what kind of player do they miss at the club that is not there and that would help that starting eleven if you put them in there? Like what kind of profile? A running midfielder or? A running midfielder would be good or just a striker who has that movement of like going to the first post to get the cross. Because frankly, Luke de Jong does not have that movement. Like, Sevilla is lacking someone, a striker or a midfield runner, who will Mm -hmm. make that diagonal run to the first post and grab the cross that is incoming. They don't have that person right now. Jack, so this game goes to halftime 0-0. We've talked a lot about tactics, but in general, I think most fans will not have enjoyed that first half. Very little penalty box area action. But the game gets shook up a little bit in the 55th minute. When Sevilla gets a penalty, when Marc Bartra, former Barcelona defender, 
goes up for a header against Luc de Jong. He touches him a little bit in the neck, but not in a way that you think, oh, it's a foul. But the very famous referee, Matteo Lajos, pointed to a spot kick. And VAR didn't change it. And Ocampos converted the penalty. So that was kind of in line with maybe what we could have expected, right? Sevilla that had possession but couldn't create anything. They get the goal fairly easily that way and could dominate the match from then on. Yeah, like it's very Sevilla that despite dominating the game for the most part, their mm-hmm. two goals came from set pieces. They right. really struggled to create something different from open play. Yeah, you already mentioned it. So Ocampos, who also had a very good game, by the way, from my opinion, with Oliver Torres, I think maybe the two best players on the pitch for Sevilla. Yeah, he converted that penalty. And then 10 minutes later, he also gave that back heeled pass on the corner kick that made sure uh, the Sevilla player could score the 2-0. Yes, that was a very neat move in the corner. And frankly, after that, Sevilla kind of shut down. They had achieved the match objective. So at that point, they retreated a bit. Yeah, so that was after one hour, they were up two goals. What kind of game did you saw in the last 30 minutes of the game? Kind of messy, to be honest. It's at that point where both teams decided to make almost all of their substitutions. So at that point, you have that mess of like, you have substitutions coming in every 10 minutes and it just feels like neither team really finished settling down at that point. Sevilla was happy with what they had. Betis tried, but couldn't really break through. I think that a very important component of the substitutions is that apart from one Sevilla substitution, I think most of them were just men for men in the same position. Like, a left winger gets replaced by a left winger. A striker gets replaced by a striker. A left back gets replaced by a left back. There were no major tactical changes. And well, uh, to be honest, from Sevilla's perspective, there was no reason to make like big tactical changes. It's a bit more disappointing that Betis did not do any major change when they were behind. What would have been an obvious change for you that you think would have been, could have been implemented to better their game? With Betis, well, from a personal perspective, I always wish that Joaquin had come into that party a bit earlier because it's Joaquin and it's a Sevilla derby. So those are matches he he takes very personally. So that would have been, just from a personal perspective, a very clear change. Yeah, Ruby, the Betis manager, threw him on quite late. Also, I do think Betis having the less qualitative side probably had the most damage from not being any fans in the stadium because I think they were most benefited by a heated atmosphere in the stadium, which was not there, even though they, it would have been a way fixture, but still. Also, they didn't really put together a, a big offensive move in the last 10 minutes or something. Eh? It went out a little bit meek. The game went out a little bit meek, and that was the first time I really noticed, yeah, okay, this would have normally been a lot more heated, and now... The game just went on and on and didn't really happen a lot. Yeah, and they tried. Like, at that point, Sevilla had mostly retreated. Betis was moving the ball mostly in Sevilla's half, but not much was happening. I do think the substitution of Laines for Teo around the 60th minute gave them a bit more dynamism because he's a pretty dynamic player. But they really didn't know how to attack. Like, the only one, as usual, who has things clear in his head is Fekir, and he's the one who can do damage, but he cannot solve everything by himself. And I think something that also makes Sevilla very strong is that with that central defender partnership of Conde and 
and Diego Carlos, they are very hard to break down in the yeah. box. Yeah, Kunde had a really good game, I thought. Like a standout performance. Yes, and I think what he provides, for example, in comparison, because Diego Carlos is like your classic no-nonsense defender and ridiculously yeah. good at it. Uh, Kunde is... Uh, It's a guy who, for example, who's a bit more refined in, for example, in how he plays from the back. So he gives you that extra bit of ability from the back. Although, to be honest, Diego Carlos also has did pretty good with his own switches of play. In general, it's a really good, it's, a, it's one of the strongest central defender partnerships in the league. And it was very obvious. This is one of those situations where, yes, Betis did not have a very clear plan of how to attack. But it's also very hard to attack when... The, the opposition is rock solid at the back. Got you. On my television channel, the Dutch rights holder to Spanish football, they put in fake audience, which didn't even look like fake audience, but they tried to cover up the empty seats in the stadium and they put in fake fan noise. Like, Where do you stand on that? Do you like that? Does it enhance your viewing experience? Do you hate it? Like, Where do you come from? As a tactics head, I kind of prefer if there were no noise because it's kind of nice to just listen to the players yelling and giving instructions to each other. I really dislike it, to be honest. Maybe you heard it already a little bit in my voice, but I'm like, they score a goal, Sevilla, and then you hear, yeah, vamos mi Sevilla, which is the club anthem sort of thing they sing all the time. I'm like, no, they're not. It's an empty stadium. Like, I'm not... It's not like I'm sucked into the game like that. I'm more... It creates a disconnection because I think, yeah, you're fooling me. It's an empty stadium. Just show an empty stadium. What are you doing? Yeah, I, for me, the noise itself, I don't care about it. I just wish it didn't have the... Like, I just find it unnecessary. That's the thing. Right, but nobody likes the situation. Like, everybody wants to have a game like this, which is one of the better La Liga games in terms of, of atmosphere in a full stadium. But uh, we have the virus. It's not possible. Just show an empty stadium. Why would you put in fan noise? It's just for the birds. That is also the... I mean, that is also true. That, that being said, like, it, it, like, it's always a bit hard for me to say if those things are generally good or bad because I think we are not normal football fans, so I don't know what most of football fandom thinks, to be right. honest. Maybe I should run a poll on our Twitter, which has a lot of tactics fans. Who knows? Anyways, second question. Do you think that if... Sevilla had a better open play offense, they could compete for the title with Barcelona and Real Madrid this season. This season, Real Madrid and Barcelona have been so inconsistent that if Sevilla had gotten their, their open play attack game like really well uh, or had like a really good goal scorer, it would be interesting. They might be up there because the team is extremely solid in the first two thirds. Very nice possession and build-up mechanisms. Very nice pressing game. Right. That's quite a statement, actually. If you go look at the, the points history and the underlying data, then Real Madrid and Barcelona are both wildly underperforming to their relative standards of the last 10 seasons. Like They have both turned in a very bad season in terms of points per game, and that's supported by their underlying data. So it's kind of gone unnoticed because that challenger wasn't there, but this would have been the season for another Atleti title or a shock Sevilla title. And, you know, the budgets are just unfair. It's the same in Spain as in the other big leagues, but still it could have happened this year. Yeah, and it's that actually leads us to a fun discussion about how much of it is just Sevilla and its budget, how much of it is 
Lopetegui style of play? Because this is a trend. Like his teams being kind of predictable in the final third is a trend. It happened with his Porto. It happened with Real Madrid. It happened with Sevilla. Uh, to be fair, both with Real Madrid and Sevilla, he came in in difficult situations. Like Real Madrid had lost their best attacker in Ronaldo. Sevilla just came from losing Ben Yeder and Sarabia, who are really good attackers. And he had to build both, rebuild both attacking systems from scratch. But in both cases, it always feels like, felt like both teams were a bit too static and predictable in the final third. The last question is, do you like where Betis is going? Because like one season, two seasons ago with Setien, they were like maybe the tactics darlings favorite team, which was very offensive, lots of transitions going on the entire game, lots of fun, crazy scores. It was like the hashtag on Twitter as well, always watch Betis. And now it's kind of, they're not as fun anymore and they're not as good anymore without really lots of quality players leaving. Like maybe this squad is better than what Citian had. So the question goes into two parts. A, do you like what Ruby is doing, the manager? And B, shouldn't they be better? They should definitely be better, and they absolutely have the quality for it. Uh, I think Betis's transfer policy over the last two to three years has been very good and very positive. So it's it's kind of sad that, for example, this season things haven't worked out so well. And it's hard for me to tell you if I like what Ruby is doing or not, because a lot of the time when I've watched Betis this season, I don't know what they're doing. Right. Okay, but that's not a good verdict on the manager, is it? It's, I know that, I know that the, what this means, it's, it's not a good verdict on the manager, which is a bit disappointing because his job with Espanol last season was extremely positive. Uh-huh. So it's a bit hard to know what exactly has gone wrong here. Well, maybe we should follow it in the upcoming weeks and write a piece about it or make another podcast, but it's not, it's, it's just not the step you would have expected based on the last few transfer windows, right? Yeah, and the issues with Betis are kind of basic in the sense that for I feel that the fundamental problem is that Betis uh, this season hasn't gotten their build-up structure right, and all the rest of the problems stem from there. Because I think Ruvi has understood that right now his front line, like people like Fekir or Loren Moron, are not as aggressive in pressing especially with a player like Fekir, they're not as aggressive in pressing as, they, as his Espanol was last season. So it's a bit more of a passive defending team. So instead, he's using like this lower, his, this deeper block, he can't recover the ball, usually waits for the opponent to come to them. And that means they often get the ball, they don't get the ball high up the pitch, and then they have to figure out how to get it back up. And they don't have the possession mechanisms to figure that out. Like to get the ball, say in their own half and then move it all the way upfield. So it's complicated. And I think if they got the possession structure right, things would, would work out much better for them. But that has been the issue the entire season. I feel that sometimes they're like a holding midfielder signing away from making everything work out, but it's hard to know. Maybe they should start to sign a Banega. Who knows? That would, that would create hell. No, no making but Banega, that kind of Banega is going to, the, I think, China or something. He's, or, or to Argentina or something. He goes away anyway. Yeah, uh, and, and it's very interesting that, for example, at this point, Sevilla is already pretty well covered to the point that I think Banega can, can leave in peace. Oh, sure. Like if you saw a couple of their midfield play today, unbelievable. 
Hey, let's wrap this up. Spain is back, even though this game was quite underwhelming. It's good that it's back. Germany was already back, obviously. Italy will be back tomorrow. England will be back next week. So, yeah, we're back, man. Football's back, even though it's not with the fans. We saw already in Germany that it does not affect a lot the quality of play on the field, especially after everyone has settled into a rhythm again. So there will be a lot for us to talk about, man, in the upcoming weeks. Yes, a lot of podcasting, a lot, and especially our, our, our poor writing staff is going to have a very fun couple months. Yes. Yes, and the editing team as well, Jose. Don't forget the editing team. Yes. So we're all going to have to pull, we're going to have to pull heroics uh, for this end oh, of the season. It's, football. it's fun. It's not heroic. It's fun. Thanks for listening. Between the Posts is a website about football tactics and stats. We produce somewhere between 8 to 12 to 15 match reports every week about matches in Europe's top leagues. Go check out the website if you have not already, betweentheposts.net. Jose, thank you, man. I'll see you next week. And like I said, a lot to choose from. So let's see what we can come up to. Yes, so it'll be it'll be a fun week to keep track of all the football that is coming back. So see you, Eric. Thanks for having me here. And thanks to everyone for listening. Oh, yeah, and uh, subscribe. Thanks. Bye-bye.